I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter this morning. It's not that long, but listen to the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 17. It says, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and staring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now when Paul was waiting for them, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him, brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do want to understand your word, and we want to apply it to our lives, Lord, and we want, Father, for you to do that work in us that you would make us more like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that as we all sit under the authority of your word, you would do that work. And Father, we pray that you will help us, even in this moment, to be attentive, to listen, and to have our hearts changed and renewed, we pray. And ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In his book, Competing Spectacles, Tony Rinke writes, Idols are dangerous when a worshiper, having lost patience in God, transfers his hope and joy into a deity represented by a handmade thing and cries out to it, awake and arise. In this move, human anticipation and expectation animate the dead idol into a deceptive liar. Whittled things, carved things become replacements for a seemingly far off God the moment we implicitly expect our spectacles to arise and awaken and grant to us the joy and the security only to be found in the living God of the universe. What Paul saw In verse 16, as he looked around Athens, wasn't unique to Athens. Indeed, one could argue that idolatry was the driving force behind those who, fueled by jealousy, were persecuting Paul and his companions, seeking to undermine the message they were preaching and that many were believing. Sure, there were no graven images at the center of their worship, but their jealousy betrayed that they were centering something other than God as the object of their worship. They had, as Rinky uh, points out, transferred their joy, transferred their security to something other than the living God. What Paul saw 
in Athens was the visible representation of the problem with all of humanity in its rebellion against God. What Paul saw is what we see as we look around our own city. Even this area of our city where God has planted us as a church, what Paul saw was a visible representation of the temptation that pulls at all of our hearts. That is to give over, to give over to things we have made with our own hands, the hope, the joy, the security that can only be found in the living God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have to acknowledge in truth that despite all of our intellectual and technological advances, that the tendency noted by Paul in Romans 1 is still there. The tendency to exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. <laughs> it is into a world, into a world where this reality continues to exist that God has called out a people for himself to be his witnesses. To a people, watch this, who are not exempt, a people who are not exempt from the temptation to give our hope and our joy and our security to a false thing, God has entrusted the message of the gospel. And it's a message that continues to call and continues to empower us who have put our faith in Jesus to center our worship on the true and living God. And it's a message that calls and offers empowerment to those who are centering their worship on other things to turn from that worship and to center it on the true and living God alone through faith in Jesus Christ. This message, brothers and sisters, in other words, is a message that keeps calling us who are in Christ to put to death the idolatry in our own lives, even as we cry out to the world through the gospel to do the same. And make, most, make no mistake about it, our idols can't be destroyed by any other message than the message that we have received in the gospel, the story that God tells us in his word that culminates in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, the, and, and we as a church, we as a church, brothers and sisters, are those who have been called out to proclaim that message. So what does that require of us? What do we have to do to be effective in proclaiming this gospel in the face of the idolatry we see all around us? Before we answer that question, let, let me first set the stage for Paul's time in Athens by looking at what happens in Thessalonica and Berea. Let me start by saying this, that idols can have a powerful hold over people. So powerful, in fact, that people will do anything to protect them. Idols can have such a powerful grip over the lives of people that they will do anything to protect them. And that's demonstrated in the actions of these religious leaders and the crowds in Thessalonica and Berea who, in a fit of jealousy at the success of Paul's preaching, decide to attack 
the home of Jason, where Paul and Silas and Timothy were staying. They were so jealous and angry that they dragged Jason and some of the brothers who were with him before the city officials, accusing them essentially of harboring criminals, saying that they had spoken against Caesar. In other words, they trumped up some charges, hoping to make them stick, hoping to create trouble for these brothers. And all of this motivated, as the text tells us, by jealousy. (laughs) So even before we get to Paul's experience of idolatry in Athens, we are already seeing the effects of idolatry on these leaders and on this crowd. You say, but there's no mention of idolatry in the text until Athens, to which I say, what is motivating the jealousy if not a centering of something else other than God as the object of worship? Sure, they can say it's zeal for God, zeal to protect the purity of the way of salvation so that people can be saved. They can say it's about God, but Luke identifies it rightly as rooted not in the worship of God, but rooted in their own jealousy. The gospel was progressing, people were believing it, and this likely meant a lessening of the crowds following them lessening of their position and power and influence. We can say it's about God, but when we are doing things like slandering, manipulating, attacking, abusing, mistreating, persecuting, and the like, we show that we are censoring something other than God in our lives. And that, my friends, is the heart of idolatry. (laughs) And so in Berea, they again have success in preaching the gospel. And of course, what happens? The religious leaders follow them, stir up the crowds, which leads Paul to being sent to Athens ahead of Timothy and Silas to escape the persecution. And when something else is at the center of our worship, we will do anything to protect that idol. So I ask again, what do we have to do to be effective in proclaiming the gospel in the face of all the idolatry we see around us. The answer comes actually in Athens, and it begins with this, that we have to embrace being thought fools. We have to embrace being thought fools. Paul gets to Athens, he's immediately confronted by the idolatry that he sees all around the city. And after a long couple uh, weeks of persecution, what does he decide to do? He decides to just relax, right? Try to avoid some trouble. No. He begins reasoning with the Jews and everyone in the city, presumably taking on the idolatry that he sees all around him. And what do those trapped under the idolatry conclude about Paul? Listen to verse 18. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. A question for you this morning, how many of us like being thought fools for the sake of the gospel? How many of us like being thought fools for the sake of the gospel. How many of us are willing to be ridiculed, are willing to be mocked, 
are willing to be dismissed for the sake of the gospel. Remember that Paul had studied under one of the most respected religious minds of his day. He had been one of his best students. And now, as a follower of Christ, he goes from educated Pharisee to babbler. He goes from educated Pharisee to babbler. So I ask again, how many of us are willing to be thought fools for Christ's sake? Some of us in the house paid thousands of dollars for an education, thousands of dollars so we could be labeled smart, thousands of dollars so we could be called doctor. But when it comes to proclaiming the gospel to the idols of the culture, we will often be declared by those who have given themselves over to those idols as babblers, as fools. And herein lies the truth. We don't want to be thought as fools. We don't want to be thought as babblers. We want to be respected by our peers. We want to be elevated by those in the culture around us as experts. But as followers of Christ, we carry a message that will be thought by many as foolishness. No matter how we dress it up, no matter how we market it, no matter how intellectually or academically we defend it, to some, the gospel will sound like pure foolishness. And we who declare it will be considered fools for proclaiming it. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with being labeled a babbler for preaching Christ? as resurrected from the dead, from preaching that salvation comes through him alone, Paul didn't miss a beat. Despite being called a babbler, he kept right on proclaiming God's story. And in this way, he was already giving expression to something he would later write in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What? You mean your reputation as being a smart guy, an educated guy? Yeah, that too. <laughs> Look, I don't know about y'all, but I will be a babbler for Christ's sake. I will be a fool for Christ's sake. I will take the mocking and the ridicule because I know that there is only one God and Savior. I know that there is only one Lord and Christ. And for his sake and for the sake of seeing those trapped under idolatry of this world set free, I will take it. If it means I won't be offered tenure among the intelligentsia of the world, so let it be. I will take my seat among the babblers of this world. For I know and declare with Peter who stood before that educated council that declared him and his friends uneducated common men that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I will keep babbling 
And I pray that you too will keep babbling. And I pray that the church will keep babbling from the streets of Southeast Grand Rapids to the roads and villages and towns across this world. Babble on, people of God, for the sake of Jesus and the freedom of those trapped under the idols of this world. And the call here, brothers and sisters, is to not count our own reputations as more valuable than the call to preach the gospel. Wherever Christ calls us to proclaim his gospel, whether within our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, we must risk being thought fools, risk being thought babblers for the sake of Christ. If we know that the gospel is the only thing that can break the idols that have taken hold of people's lives, then we have to have the courage to proclaim that gospel at the risk of being dismissed. And this, as I said, means getting over ourselves. It means getting over ourselves as it relates to our own reputations before men. It means caring more about folk being rescued than about our names being etched in the stone of other people's minds and hearts. Paul was provoked in his spirit when he saw the idols in Athens. He was provoked because he knew the lies those idols upheld and the destruction that those idols brought into the world. The story of his own people, the story of his own people was a story that included national as well as personal disasters that had been brought on by people's worship of idols. And so now knowing the gospel, Paul would not hold back on proclaiming it in order that people might be rescued, even if it meant that he was going to be thought a fool. And we too have to care more about folks' salvation than we do about the security of our own names. Amen, people of God. So we have to embrace being thought fools if we're going to preach the gospel to the idols of our culture. The second thing we have to do, brothers and sisters, we have to study the idols. We have to study the idols. What do I mean? Paul's commitment to babbling led to an invitation to babble among the learned of the city at a place called the Areopagus, which was the center of sort of civil and religious life in the city. And in front of some of the philosophers of the city, Paul was invited to give an address. And Paul says this in verse 22 and 23, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul did not just look around the city and see that there were idols everywhere. He took the time, actually, to study the idols. He took the time to observe to better understand the particular idols that were predominant in that city in order that he might preach the gospel effectively in that city. Paul studied in the time he was there the particular false narratives that were plaguing that city. And by, and by the way, at the heart of idolatry, at the heart of idolatry is a story. Idols tell stories. Idols tell stories. Idols tell stories that seek at their heart to dethrone God from his rightful place as Lord. 
as the only one with the right to tell us who we are and where we're headed, what this world was made for and where it's headed. There is, in other words, a controlling narrative, a controlling narrative that goes along with the idol. And it is that narrative that we are tempted to believe, that we are tempted to buy into as a replacement for the story that God is telling us in the scriptures. And so Paul uncovered the idols of Athens and indeed the particular one that had trapped people in that city. And Luke actually prepares us for this when he tells us in verse 21 that the Athenians spent their time doing nothing but actually telling and listening to uh, new knowledge, new, new, new stories, new truths, or new false truths, I should say. <laughs> Paul then in his speech notes an altar to an unknown God. The Athenians spent all their time, in essence, celebrating their ability to come up with new ideas, praising, in a sense, the vastness of their own human knowledge. And so it's only fitting that their idol is to an unknown God. Perhaps he is the God who can't be known because he is so vast, or the God that our intellect has yet to uncover but one day will. Either way, they have shaped a God in their own image. And this is precisely what we do when we craft our idols. We craft idols in our own image. Listen to the Lord himself when he describes our idol-making activity in Isaiah 44. Here's what he says. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not, do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, hungry, and his faith fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worship it, worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the ha other half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a God. So, so God is describing the foolishness of our crafting idols in our own image and saying we're, we're, we're eating with half of it, <laughs> we're warming ourselves with half of it, and it's all something that we have made with our own hands, which has no power. <laughs> Can I ask a question? What are the idols of our city? Do we know? Do we know? What things have we crafted in our own image that we are calling out to and saying, deliver me 
for you are my God. Paul studied the idols of Athens. Are we studying ours? Do we know the idols of our own city? Now, I'm going to say something. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know how to sniff out the particular idols of a city, the false narratives that people are giving their lives over to. Some of you have learned how to sniff out false narratives simply by being parents. I'm going to tell you what that looks like. I was at a restaurant. I was picking up something to eat for lunch, and I overheard a conversation between two women. The one told the story of lying to her mother about where she was going on a particular evening. She had created an elaborate story to convince her mother that she was going somewhere harmless and that her mother needed not worry. The place she was going, of course, was to a house party where there would be all kinds of stuff going on that she knew her Christian mother would not approve of. And she was convinced that she had told a great story. She was convinced that she had crafted a great narrative that would not only get her what she wanted and get her where she wanted to go, but would ensure her enjoyment at this party without her mother being the wiser. A short time into the party, someone came to her and alerted her that there was somebody outside asking for her. So she walked out of the door and was greeted by her mother. You guessed it. Who calmly and sternly and with a look on her face that promised a narrative of her own in both word and deed spoke four words to her daughter. Get in the car. Get in the car. <laughs> Parents have a way of sniffing out false narratives, right? Studying their kids to be able to discern the false narratives from the true ones. And can I tell you something? We as Christians have to know the false narratives that are driving our neighbors, the lies that they are telling themselves. And we have to know those lies, those false stories, so that we know how to present the gospel to those stories. So I ask again, do we know the idols of our own city? Have we taken the time to recognize the things that people in our city worship? If we haven't, we need to. A huge part of being able to preach the gospel means knowing what things people are worshiping aside from God, knowing what things are consuming them, knowing the things that are really giving direction and purpose to their lives. This means talking to people. It means learning the history of your city, both written and oral. It means paying attention to what people spend their time doing, what they spend their money on, what they spend their talents pursuing. It also means paying attention to our own lives because often the things that are pulling at us for worship are also pulling on our neighbors. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, it means caring enough to pay attention, caring enough to observe through talking to people, listening, looking around, studying our environment. If we don't know what the idols are, we will have a hard time explaining the gospel effectively to those around us. The gospel is not presented in a vacuum, but in the real world of people's lives. 
the gospel is not presented in a vacuum, but in the real world of people's lives, which often include the worship of things other than God, who created them in his image and after his likeness. So we have to embrace being fools. We have to study the idols around us. And lastly, brothers and sisters, we have to contextualize the gospel. What do I mean by that? Paul, the babbler, now turns from studying the idol to presenting the gospel in the face of the idolatry that he sees around him. If you read the sermon that Paul preaches in Athens, what you realize is that Paul is contextualizing the gospel. He's presenting the message of the gospel to meet the particular idolatry that he uncovered. He isn't changing the gospel. He isn't preaching a different gospel. He isn't dumbing down the gospel. Rather, he is answering the specific claim that the idols of the city are making. Since the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of human intellect, human imagination are at the forefront of how the Athenians spend their time, Paul speaks of God as the one who does not need human intellect. He is the God who does not need human knowledge or imagination to serve him. Instead, he is the one who gives life and breath to every human being. He is the one through his knowledge that has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of where human beings live. Though we, though we try to feel our way toward him, God hasn't waited, right, for us to be found. He hasn't waited to be found by human strivings. Instead, he has made himself known fashioning us in his image, making himself the reason we live and move and have our being. Paul is preaching the gospel, but he is preaching it to the specific idols that are going on in the city of Athens. He's taking on the idols in Athens. And brothers and sisters, this is what God calls us to do. Preach the gospel in the face of the idolatry that is all around us. Yes, Paul does preach the gospel, but he preaches it to the reality of what he sees around him, the idols he sees around him, and we're called to do the same. And let me tell you what this means. It means we have to be acquainted with the whole story of God as it is conveyed in the scriptures. Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament narrative is what allowed him not only to know the idols of Athens, but to know God's response to those idols. Some of us, quite frankly, don't know the story. We'll be pastoral this morning. Some of us don't know the story because we don't read our Bibles. Some of us actually don't interact with the Word of God until we get here on Sunday morning. And I'm here to tell you, if you don't know the story, you won't know how to confront the idols that people are dealing with in their lives. You have to know the story of the gospel if you're going to be able to preach the gospel into people's lives. Amen, people of God. Because the gospel isn't just a formula, and we're not just presenting a creed, we're presenting a person. Amen. So you got to know the story. You got to know the story. And some of us, quite frankly, don't know the story. We know what our favorite political pundit thinks. We know what our favorite news agency thinks. We know what our favorite talk show host thinks. We know what our favorite writer thinks. 
we know what our hairstylist thinks or our barber thinks. We know what our next door neighbor thinks. We know what our Facebook and Twitter friends think. We know what our favorite preacher thinks, our favorite conference speaker thinks. But do we know what God thinks? Do we know the story of the Bible? And can we give answer to the idols of the culture around us because we know that story and know it well? We got news for you. Sharing the gospel isn't just the job of the preacher, and it isn't just the job of the elder, and it isn't just the job of the deacon. It's your job. And it means you got to know the story in order to share that gospel with those around you. I will be forever grateful for my time in seminary, for those who were part of training me in how to dig deep in the scriptures and grow not only in my head knowledge, but my heart knowledge of God's word as I prepare for the ministry. But I know people who have not spent a day in a seminary classroom, but they know their Bibles well, who know the story of God well, who as a result will be able to tell that story to those who are trapped under the false idols of this world and their false narratives. So to present the gospel, we have to know the story of the scriptures well. And the story of the scriptures touch on every aspect of who we are. They touch on every aspect of what God has called us to be in this world. They touch on every aspect of what God created this world for and where it's headed. Tells us about our sin and brokenness, why the world is the way it is, and what God has planned to do to make it right. The point is that the questions people are wrestling with about themselves and their world, God has answered in the story of the scriptures which find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So bottom line, study your Bible. <laughs> Pick it up, read it, study it. And where you have questions, look to other believers who have studied and drank deeply from it. We spend so much time listening to the narratives of our favorite idol rather than spending time in the word of the living God. No wonder we are finding ourselves joyless, hopeless, uncertain, because we're not spending time listening to our God. Amen, people of God. I can tell you with certainty that there are idols all around us, like there were in the city of Athens. The false idols, their false narratives remain a powerful and oppressive force in this world and over the lives of human beings created in the image and after the likeness of God. But God has entrusted to us a message, a message, a message of power that will break those idols and their false narratives and break their grip over people's lives. What do we have to do to be effective in proclaiming that gospel? Well, we have to embrace being fools as we preach it, study the idols to be effective in preaching that gospel, and contextualize that gospel to the particular idols we are confronting. God in Christ has given us power for this through the Spirit of God that he has placed on the inside of us. Let's walk in step with the Spirit of God that we might be able to proclaim the gospel in our day to all of the idols around us as well. Amen, people of God. Amen.